All right. First Corinthians 15, if you could, could turn in your Bibles to First Corinthians 15. That's where we'll be tonight. So continue working our way through this chapter. I'd like to look at verses 12 through 19 tonight, 1 Corinthians 15, and talk about the fact that not only do dead men tell no tales, uh, dead men save no souls. And so Paul is talking about the resurrection and the fact that at the church in Corinth, for some reason, believers there were beginning to deny the fact that there was a resurrection of the dead. And so as a result, in the first 11 verses, Paul reminds them of the gospel, that they became Christians by believing the good news that Jesus lived and died and rose again on our behalf so that we could be saved from our sins. And so he reminds them of that gospel. And then in verses 12 through 19, he's going to give them the opportunity to think about what it means to deny the resurrection, to say that there is no resurrection from the dead. What would be the implications of that? In other words, what if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? What would that mean for all of us? Um, I have a quote there from C.S. Lewis where he said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And so that's really what I believe the point that Paul's making here in this section of 1 Corinthians 15 is he's arguing that if indeed it is true that Jesus is who he said he was, that he did what he said he was going to do, that he rose from the dead, then it's of infinite importance that we embrace that, that we trust him in light of that, and that we live in light of that. But if it's a lie, if it's not the truth, then it has zero importance. And we should just go home right now. And so let me read for us verses 12 through 19 of 1 Corinthians 15. It says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised." For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So Paul says some really amazing things when you think about what he says here about what are the implications of there being no resurrection from the dead and no resurrection of Jesus. And the first thing he says is Christianity is empty, which means if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then there is nothing to what we say, 
and there's nothing to what we believe. The word for preaching there is the word for making an announcement like we do at the beginning of our service. And so he's basically saying we've gone around announcing the, the, what we said was the truth that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We must be guilty of fake news. This must not be uh, something that anyone should really listen to or believe because it's empty. The word for vain means without any basis, without any support. And that's usually what we call fake news. If it's truly fake news, it's something like when they said uh, Fred Rogers uh, was a sniper during the Vietnam War. And there appears to be no evidence that he did anything like that. Uh, they said that the reason why he wore sweaters was to cover up his tattoos as well uh, that he got during the Vietnam War as a sniper. And so you've got this kind of fake news in which you have to ask the question, is there any basis for that? Just because somebody says uh, that, it doesn't mean it's true. And Paul is saying, don't you realize that if Jesus isn't really raised from the dead, we're just going around announcing Fake news. We're just saying things that have no basis in history. And he says that is really a very serious thing for a lot of different reasons. It's interesting in the Gospels when you read about the life of Jesus and you even read about how his family responded to him and how other people's people responded to him. It's really fascinating. Um, last week we talked about the fact that Paul mentions the the. The fact that James had an uh, appearance of Jesus to James. And James was Jesus' half-brother. And that he went on to become uh, the leader in the Jerusalem church. Well, before the death and resurrection of Jesus, James did not believe in Jesus. Didn't think that what he said was true. He thought something very, very different. You can see it reflected in Mark chapter 3 when it talks about the fact that uh, in verse 21 it says, when his own people heard of this, he was actually ministering to people, preaching and teaching and healing, and there's, there are big crowds gathering around Jesus, and it says when his own people heard of this, and later on in the chapter you find out that's a reference to his mother and his brothers. When his own people heard about this, it says... They went out to take custody of him. They were going to try and take him home. Because they said he has lost his senses. His own family thought he was crazy. Then it goes on from there and it says the scribes, religious leaders who came down from Jerusalem, were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And so basically what's going on there is the same kind of thing that C.S. Lewis would talk about when he said, no one should say that Jesus was just a good teacher because a good teacher would not say the kinds of things that Jesus said, like, I'm God, I'm going to lay down my life, I will save people from their sins, all those kinds of things. A good teacher would not say those kinds of things uh, if he wasn't really what he said he was. He would be either a lunatic, he has lost his senses, or he'd be a liar like the devil, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Well, if he's not a lunatic or a liar, there's only one other 
option. He really is who he said he was. And the resurrection testifies to the fact that he wasn't crazy and he wasn't demon-possessed. He wasn't a liar like the devil. But he really was who he said he was, which makes the preaching of the gospel not fake news, but gloriously appropriate. And it makes our faith not vain or empty, but fully vindicated. It's the same kind of thing that Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, when he says that we're to conduct ourselves in fear during the time of our stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things. And he goes on to talk about the fact that we were redeemed through the blood of Christ. But how do we know that we've been redeemed through the blood of Christ? Well, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we'd have no reason to believe that his blood redeems us. But he goes on to say that you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He's saying it's the very resurrection of Jesus that causes you to know that your faith is not empty. Causes you to know that the preaching of the gospel is not a vain exercise in fake news with no biblical, no, no support of any kind. And so the first thing is that Christianity is not empty. But it would be empty if Jesus really hadn't been raised from the dead. The second thing that he says is that if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, Christianity is a lie. He says in verse 15, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. He's saying, we're going around making this announcement as heralds, saying Jesus was raised from the dead, and what we're doing is we're actually lying about what God did. He actually uses the term pseudo-martyrs. We're actually testifying, witnessing to something that isn't true. We're giving a false testimony. We're actually deceiving people. You ever watched uh, TBN or some other religious channel and you heard somebody on there preaching something that you knew wasn't true and you were disgusted by it, you despised the message and what they were saying. Paul is saying that's how people should feel about us. They should see us as what we are if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. They should see us as liars. We should be exposed as liars. There's actually a, a woman that I just found out about recently called Catherine Crick, who is called Apostle Catherine Crick. And she has like 900,000 followers on TikTok. She has, you know, millions and millions of views. And she claims to cast out demons and she claims to heal. And she claims to be a modern day apostle. And she has a church, I think, in L.A., called 5F Church, which, which stands for Fivefold Ministry Church. And uh, people are obviously uh, doing some background checks on her and some research on her. And one of the things they've come across is that Catherine Crick and another guy named Bob Larson, who also does exorcism, sisms, public exorcisms, or actually do it online too. He'll do it over Skype for $295. 
So whether he does it in person or online, they're both involved in exorcism, but they came across the fact that both of these people, these supposed exorcists, have used the same woman who acted like she was demon-possessed. And they know it's the same woman because she has the exact same tattoo on her arm. And so these people are being exposed as lying and just portraying some kind of exorcism that isn't really happening. Well, Paul is saying we would be just like those kinds of people. We're just uh, not really telling the truth. We're deceiving people. And if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, we are exposed as liars. And the reality is, God takes it very serious. When he says we, um, we are you know, lying against God, that's no s- small thing. If you think about what God did at the end of the book of Job, Job is suffering, and he has three friends who initially just sit with him and, and um, show him some compassion. But as the story goes, they begin more and more aggressively trying to argue that the only reason Job is suffering is because he's obviously sinned against God in some terrible way. People don't suffer terribly like Job suffered unless they had sinned terribly. Well, you get to the end of the story, and God actually says to Job's three friends, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, speaking to Eliphaz, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And so he says, you need to ask Job to pray for you. And so Job does. And God restores uh, Job's family and his wealth and all those things. But the point is, God took it very serious when those men said things that were not true about God. It's a very serious thing to go around saying, this is what God says or this is what God has done if he hasn't said it, and if he hasn't done it. And so Paul is highlighting the fact that they realized that they would be in serious trouble if they were going around lying about what God has done. There's an interesting passage in the book of Acts with regard to this whole issue of the resurrection of Jesus uh, in Acts chapter 5, actually, where... uh, The apostles are beginning to be persecuted. And one of the Pharisees stands up and says, essentially, you need to be careful about what you're doing in persecuting these men who are testifying about Jesus and him being raised from the dead and that sort of thing. He says to the Pharisees, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting 
against God. So it's very interesting is this, this man who didn't believe in Jesus was arguing that plenty of people stand up and say there's somebody special. And people follow them a while, at least until they die. And then it's done. It's over. And so he says, you guys just need to wait and see. If Jesus isn't really raised from the dead, then this Christianity thing, that these followers of Jesus, they're going to go home. They're going to go back to their farms. They're going to go back to their jobs. They're going to go back to fishing, whatever they were doing. And it's going to die on its own. You don't even have to oppose it. But it didn't die on its own because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And instead of the movement dying out, the apostles and others were willing to die for their testimony that Jesus was truly risen from the dead. And nobody dies for something they know is a lie. Now, they may believe a lie, but they don't die for things they just make up and they know or lies. And so he says, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, it's all a lie. But he is raised from the dead. The third thing he says is that if Jesus isn't or wasn't raised, we are unforgiven without the hope of heaven at best and on our way to hell at worst. He says in verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And if Christ has not been raised, excuse me, then those who have also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And so what he's saying there is this word worthless is similar to the word for vain, but it actually means fruitless. Your faith is. Not only is empty if Jesus hasn't been raised, but also it also bears no fruit, which is an interesting thing to say because some people would say, well, even if Christianity isn't um, true, at least it makes me a better person. Well, Paul doesn't argue that here. He doesn't say, well, yeah, at least you're a better person, you're a better, better citizen by being a Christian. He doesn't say that at all says, no, uh, it'd be better not to even be a Christian if Jesus isn't truly raised from the dead because he would say there's no real benefit. There's no real worth to it. And he's connecting it to the most important thing about Christianity. Christianity isn't about being most, well, the most important thing about Christianity is not about being a better citizen. It's not about... Um, you know, achieving what you want to achieve in life. It's about the issue of my guilt, that I stand guilty before a holy God. And one day I'm going to stand in front of that God and I'm going to have to give an account of my life. And the question is, will I have any hope of being accepted by that God? And Paul is saying, that the whole message of Christianity is that Jesus died for sinners and he rose for sinners so that we could be forgiven, so that we could enjoy heaven, and so that we could escape hell. And if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then we have no reason to believe that 
faith in him is going to do any real good for us. And he says, those who've died, those who've, who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're not enjoying heaven. And as guilty sinners, they would be experiencing hell. The whole idea of perishing is reflected in John 3.16 when G- Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The Bible says that Jesus came that we would not perish in hell, and that we would enjoy eternal life, which is fellowship with God, full and lasting joy and peace and happiness forever. And the only way I can believe that I as a sinner could enjoy that and be rescued from that penalty is if I have a substitute, if I have someone to stand in my place. And the only way I can know that there is someone like that is if Jesus truly rose from the dead. There's an interesting program that um, Jan likes to watch called Call the Midwife. And in one of those episodes, it talks about um, how the British would send, back from the 1920s to the 1970s, the British would send children to Australia and to Canada to try to relieve some of the uh, orphanages in England and basically to populate Australia and Canada in various ways in light of British concerns. And they would pitch that program. It was a child migrant program. They would pitch that program by saying, you know, your children are going to have a better life. They're going to lead happier lives. Uh, Their best chance in life would be if they were a part of this program. And for most of them, they were uh, children born to unwed mothers and those kinds of situations where they would either end up in the orphanage or in some other situation. And so this program was pitched to them as being this wonderful solution to their need. And it turned out that it was, in most cases, uh, horrible servitude, Uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and all kinds of terrible things happened to these children. And later on, the British government had to actually apologize for the program and what took place through that program. And so Paul is basically saying that if we believe in a, a Jesus who was not raised from the dead, we will die thinking we're going to a wonderful place when we're not. Thinking we're going to have a wonderful reward and we're not. Thinking indeed that we're going to enjoy uh, bliss and happiness and we actually experience the exact opposite. The whole story about the rich man and Lazarus is one of those stories where Jesus talks about the rich man who enjoys, you know, sumptuous food and and feasting and partying every day. And then Lazarus sits at the gate with his sores and the dogs lick the sores and he longs to be fed with the crumbs off the rich man's table. And as the story goes, uh, Lazarus, the poor man, the suffering man, um, the needy person dies and goes to heaven. He goes to Abraham's bosom. The rich man dies who's lived a wonderful life, a life that everybody wants to live in this world. 
he dies and goes to hell. People that think about that, think about that story in that day and time would have actually been shocked because their perspective on things was if you're blessed in this life, you'll be blessed in the life to come. If you suffer in this life, you'll probably suffer in the life to come because blessing in this life is equal to God's favor. Suffering in this life is equal to God's curse. So the people listening to Jesus, would have their jaws would have dropped. They would have been amazed. You're telling me that the rich man didn't go to heaven and the poor man did? It would have been a twist. It would have been a story with a twist. And yet it's a real twist. And yet what Paul is doing here is he's basically saying, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we're actually telling a story with a twist. We're telling people, this is your glorious future if you trust in Jesus. But if he's not raised from the dead, there's a terrible twist to this story. And he says, it really matters whether Jesus was raised from the dead or not. Because if he was raised from the dead, then our faith is not worthless, but priceless. Priceless. You cannot pay me enough money for me to give up my faith if Jesus is truly raised from the dead. And if he was raised from the dead and we're trusting him as our Lord and Savior, we are forgiven. We are accepted by God and we can know that. And we are delivered from our sins and we know that we will one day be satisfied in heaven with God even if we're suffering like Lazarus right now. Even if we have sores all over our body, the dogs are licking those sores and we're longing for the crumbs from somebody else's plate right now, if we're trusting in a risen Savior, one day it'll be totally different. And we can know that and we can trust that that is truly the case. And that's why Jesus could say things like what he said in John 14, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so he promises that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And the implication is it's going to be a place that will fulfill the longing of your soul. All of us have longings in our lives now. Heaven is a place where all those longings are fulfilled. And so Paul is arguing that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christianity is empty, it's a lie, it's worthless. And the final thing he says is, it's just sad. Christianity is just a sad, sad story. He's basically saying, if Jesus wasn't raised, our foolish trust in a dead man should cause people to feel sorry for us. He says in verse 19, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now think about that. He says of every person on the planet, all different kinds of people, if we as Christians don't have a risen Savior, everyone should pity us the most. That's an amazing statement for him to say. The word for pity means 
uh, miserable. It's the idea of feeling sorry for someone in a miserable condition, especially, I think, is the implication here when they don't know it, when they're deluded. Um, in Revelation 3, Jesus is rebuking the church in Laodicea, and he says, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and yet you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He says, you think you're in a great position, but you're in a terrible position. And Paul says, if that's truly the case, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, we think we're in a great position for the life to come, but we're, we ought to be pitied because we're deluded. We, we have this delusion about a risen Savior when it ha- really hasn't happened. There's a book called History's Famous Delusions, and those who believe them. And it talks about different people in history who thought some really interesting things about themselves. Uh, there was a clockmaker who thought his head had been cut off and replaced. And he was anxious about that because he liked the other set of teeth that he had. Um, there was this tea broker who actually thought that Uh, Somebody was using an heirloom to um, basically control the minds of the British Parliament. Um, There was one housemaker who thought that all of her family had been replaced by doubles. The point is, these people are believing things that aren't true, and they're deluded by that. And you look at that and you say, yeah, I feel sorry for someone like that. That's a, that's a miserable condition to think that something like that has happened to you, has happened to your family, and it's torturing you. It's, it's something that we think about and are, feel pity for, for people who just don't see things as they really are. And especially for people who've put their hope in something or put their hope in someone and are terribly wrong. We feel sorry for people like that. If we see them putting their hope in something that they that we know is never going to give them what they're looking for. We feel sorry for someone so deluded. It's kind of like um, the, the two um, disciples on the road to Emmaus after Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus meets up with them as they're going back to Emmaus. And he asked them, so what are you talking about? And it says, the Bible says, they stood still looking sad. And why were they sad? They said, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And Jesus says, what things? Tell me about it. And they say, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And the implication being, but we were terribly wrong. We are terribly wrong. Maybe, because we... Then they go on to say, but we have begun to hear some stories about some women talking about Jesus rising from the dead. But their initial response was, we put all our hope in Jesus and he, was, he wasn't who we thought he was. 
We were terribly wrong. They were sad. And Paul would say, if that was really true, if he wasn't risen from the dead, they would have good reason to be sad and it would be good reason for others to feel pity for them as well. Well, the good news is that Jesus is risen from the dead. And the question is, uh, beyond fighting our own doubts and fears in light of that, how can we apply this to our lives? And so let me just wrap up uh, with some encouragement. Um, The first thing that I think we can think about from this passage is to realize that we need to be careful of the ideas we embrace. Um, Paul is basically saying, if you embrace the idea that Jesus, that, excuse me, that people are, are not raised from the dead, then the logical conclusion is that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, the logical conclusion is, then he has done nothing for us. And we're foolish to trust in Jesus. And so there are logical and real consequences to the ideas that we embrace. Um, there's a lot going on in our society uh, with regard to things like critical race theory, CRT. It's a big deal. Uh, a lot of Christians and Christian organizations are embracing that. But there was a documentary that came out recently called By What Standard? And the point of the documentary is there's there are all kinds of ideas floating around that could be terribly detrimental to you spiritually. And you have to have a standard for evaluating those ideas. And the argument in this um, video is our only standard is the word of God. We have to have a standard for the ideas that pop into our heads, for the ideas that people are preaching on TV Uh, coming through social media, we have to be careful because an idea can produce all kinds of bad fruit if it's a bad idea, if it's not the truth. And therefore, we have to be very, very careful about that. Jesus could say, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. The opposite is true too. You can know and embrace a lie and the lie will enslave you. And so to embrace a lie is to embrace that which is actually going to hurt us, not help us. And so we have to really ask ourselves, first of all, what is my standard for evaluating what I think and what other people say? And as Christians, we believe that this Bible is the the word of God. And it's the only thing that is an objective way of evaluating what we hear and what we think. Secondly, we need to be careful of what we say about God uh, in the sense that we talk about influencers, you know, social media influencers. The reality is all of us are influencers. We're influencing somebody. And so we have to be careful of what we even say about God. There's an interesting passage in Psalm 73 where the psalmist is wrestling with the fact that he is suffering and those who, and he's a godly person, and those who aren't godly people uh, seem to have it easy, have it good. 
And he's really wrestling with that reality. And he says, uh, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They have increased in wealth. And he says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. But then he says this, interestingly enough. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's saying, if I had just gone around publicly proclaiming my doubts about God and his righteous dealings with people and his seemingly blessing the wicked and and sending curses on the righteous, which is what he was actually being tempted to think, I would have betrayed the people around me. But he goes on to say, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Meaning, you know, in time, God basically corrected my wrong impression about what was really happening. And he helped me to see what was really going on. There's um, a guy named Derek Webb. He used to sing for Cademan's Call um, back in the 80s and 90s, I think. And um, a lot of people loved that band and loved what Derek Webb was doing. Well, since that time, he has renounced the faith and he's begun singing what he would call Christian and gospel music but it is not the kind of Christian and gospel music that he was singing back in the 80s and the 90s. There's one song that is called God in Drag, in which he kind of plays off the Sermon on the Mount, and he sings, you've heard it said that man is fallen and, and that Jesus is the only way to be saved, but I say unto you, you're beautiful and free, meaning just as you are. You're not fallen, you don't need Jesus, The truth is, you're just beautiful and free just as you are. There's another song entitled, Boys Will Be Girls. And he says in that song, I've heard Jesus loved and spent his life with those who were abandoned by proud and fearful men. So if a church won't celebrate and love you, they're believing lives that can't save even them. And so he's saying that what Christians would call sin, because they believe the Bible calls it sin, if you don't receive that and celebrate that, then you're actually um, doing the opposite of what Jesus would do, and you're actually believing lies, and you won't be saved. So he's, he's, he's feeding these ideas to people who may think he's somehow talking about Christianity And the question is, will I evaluate those things in light of an objective standard that I can truly trust? And will I be careful myself of spreading things about God that are actually going to encourage people to doubt his goodness and his faithfulness? That's one of the good things about our sharing time. It encourages us to continue to trust God, even in the most difficult of circumstances. The last thing that I just want to encourage us with is to make sure that what we believe in has meaning beyond this life. Because if Paul could say, Christianity, if all it does is 
something for you in this life, but it has no application beyond this life, then it's worthless. And so the question is, is what we believe in something that will make a difference in the life to come, not just this life? Because Christianity is primarily about the life to come. Why is that? Because most of our time is going to be spent in the life to come. This life is brief. For some people, it's only a few years. For others, it may be a hundred years. But even a hundred years compared to eternity is a just a drop in the bucket of the ocean of time. It's a very, very small part of time. And so the reality is Christianity is mostly about the life to come because that is the huge part of our existence. And we want to make sure that what we believe in doesn't simply impact the short, brief time that we have in this life, but impacts the life to come. And that's why Peter could say in 1 Peter chapter 1, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now think about that. He says, whatever you're going through, whatever you're suffering, whatever's good or difficult about your life, make sure your hope is completely set on what God promises you when Jesus comes back in the life to come. So if there is no life to come, then there's really no point in Christianity. But if there is, there's every reason for us to set our hope on all that God has promised us. There's a philosophy of life called existentialism. It's basically the idea that there there is no God, there is no purpose in life, uh, there is no right and wrong, um, there is no meaning, and the basic tenet is existence precedes essence, meaning your life has no meaning until you give it some meaning. And so you define yourself, you define your life, and you tell yourself why your life has meaning. Because it has none, really. And you just have to come up with something. Well, Paul would say, if, if that's true, then... He's going to say later on, let's eat, drink, and be merry. Um, Because there's no sense in making up a meaning that isn't really there. But the reality is, if Jesus was raised from the dead, and he was raised from the dead so that others could be raised from the dead, then we know that there is a life after death. And ultimately, what we want to make sure is that We're not like the emperor in the story, the emperor's new clothes. We've all heard that story where this emperor loved clothes. These two swindlers come into town and they convince him and everybody else that they know how to make clothes, that the only people that can see those clothes are those who are fit for their office and those who aren't terribly stupid. And so they supposedly weave these clothes, these invisible clothes, and everybody looks at what they're doing and they can't see anything. But they won't say anything because they think it means they're unfit for their office or they're terribly stupid. And so the emperor goes along with that because he doesn't want to think he's unfit to be emperor. And he supposedly puts on these clothes and he walks down 
the public street and everybody is clapping and applauding because they want to be seen as people who are fit for their place and not stupid. But a little child says, hey, he has no clothes on. And all of a sudden people begin to realize, well, maybe he really doesn't have any clothes on. But he continues on as the story goes, and the story ends this way and says, but he has nothing on at all, cried uh, the whole people. That made a deep impression upon the emperor, for it seemed to him that they were right. But he thought to himself, now I must bear up to the end. And the chamberlains walked with still greater dignity, carrying this imaginary train as if they carried the train which did not exist. He was exposed as having no clothes, but he refused to act differently. What the Bible basically is meant to do is to tell us that in terms of a robe of righteousness, we have no clothes. Our clothes are filled with filth. We're clothed with sin. And so we have no robe of righteousness. We stand naked before a holy God. But because Jesus is raised from the dead, we know that when he says, I offer you cleansing from your sin, and I offer you a robe of righteousness so you can stand forgiven and righteous before God, we can believe that he's not telling us a lie. And we need not fear death. We need not fear anything. Because we've been reconciled to God through someone who actually did what he said he was going to do. He died and he rose in the place of sinners. And that's the only way we can escape standing before God with imaginary clothes. If Jesus rose from the dead, he has real clothes to cover our sin and to enable us to stand before God righteous and holy and accepted and loved forever. Let's pray. Father, we just pray and ask that you would help us to see how this applies uh, in our lives. Um, Please strengthen our faith in the resurrection of Christ and the importance of the good news of his life and death and resurrection for us every day. We pray, Father, that everyone here would see their need for that cleansing and that clothing and the righteousness of Christ and trust him as a risen Savior, an able and willing Savior. Father, we pray as we prepare for the Lord's Supper that we would, in a fresh and new way, appreciate what Christ has done for us and that we would celebrate the fact that we will be raised from the dead to enjoy eternal life because he has been raised from the dead for us. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.